Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Previously on Truth and Justice. Do you believe that Sandra Melgar was in fact not just legally but factually guilty of the murder of her husband? Yes, absolutely, 100%. And by the way, if I thought that the, she was not guilty, I never would have tried this case. I would have dismissed it. All the houses were nice. It was just quiet. And it it, did, it didn't strike me as a house that anybody would naturally pick to do a robbery. And the fact that it was in that neighborhood that they hadn't had any type of robberies or any type of crime like that before. And when you have to think about what a person who wants to go and try and burglarize that house, what they're looking at, the Melgars, according to Sandra, were awake, and it was like, I think, midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. So they had four dogs that were barking, and they were in the jacuzzi tub talking about how much they loved each other for two hours. Why would a burglar go into a house in that neighborhood where the people were not only there but they were awake and had barking dogs that doesn't make sense Jim Melgar's murder is one of the most complex and confusing cases that we've ever taken on. There's no obvious answer here. No glaring piece of evidence that sets us off on a clear path of investigation. From what we know so far, and that's Sandy Melgar's memory of that night, as told during her police interrogation, District Attorney Colleen Barnett's theory on the case, and Herman and Maria's recollection of the events of the night Jim's body was found, all leave us with more questions than answers. At this point, the backbone of our work on the case is the only investigation that ever occurred on the record, that of the Harris County Sheriff's Department in the Harris County DA's office. In her interview, Colleen Barnett made several statements of supposed fact that have formed her opinion and theories on the case. Namely, that it doesn't make sense for a burglar to have targeted the Melgar's house when they were at home and awake. This was a nice neighborhood that, in her opinion, wouldn't be appealing to a burglar and the fact that nothing was stolen from the home. The question that we need to be asking ourselves is where does the district attorney get her information about the case from? And the answer is simple, from the police investigators. 
we've already learned that the Harris County Sheriff's Department never bothered to conduct an investigative interview with either Herman or Maria Melgar. Because of this, Barnett was left to work off the proposed theory of the detectives. And as we know, their theory regarding the bindings was flawed from the very beginning. Investigators made assumptions about how Sandy was tied up based on their own theory that she had bound herself. Had the Melgars ever been interviewed, Barnett's perspective may have been very different. But the theory that Sandy staged this crime scene after murdering her husband is only partly to blame on the failure to interview Herman and Maria. The crux of the state's case against Sandy Melgar came from the work of Harris County crime scene investigator Maurice Carpenter. Carpenter spent several hours at the Melgar home following the discovery of Jim's body. He took nearly a thousand photos, had the entire procedure videotaped, and compiled his findings into a supplemental police report. This is the report that Colleen Barnett would have been working off of, and our job now is to analyze it and figure out if he missed anything right after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers farm-fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. My confidence in the kitchen has skyrocketed since I started using Blue Apron. Just the other night, I made seared chicken and tangy barbecue sauce. And this isn't a recipe I'd normally come up with on my own, but the final product was a big hit. And for tonight's menu, I'm cooking cheeseburgers with spicy slaw. Again, spicy slaw is something I never would have even thought to try before Blue Apron. Blue Apron has quick and easy recipe options. They send you perfectly portioned ingredients and they deliver them right to your door. And they make dinner quick, easy, and oh yeah, insanely tasty. You can skip meal planning and get straight to cooking with Blue Apron. They have chef-designed recipes and some exciting partnerships like Bob's Burgers and MasterChef. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash truth. That's blueapron.com slash truth to get your first three meals for free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. In today's episode, you're going to hear Maurice Carpenter's report room by room and word by word. As I break down his report, I'll be comparing his findings to the actual crime scene photos that he took while making these observations. The report and the crime scene photos are up on our website if you'd like to follow along, which I'd highly recommend. And this week, we're going to cover the entire house except for the master suite where the actual murder occurred. We'll be covering that next week. Carpenter's report helped to shape Colleen Barnett's theory of how this murder occurred. Listen closely, and let's see if his report leads you to the same conclusion when we add to it the photos that he never mentions. Was this a simple case of domestic violence turned deadly? A home invasion or burglary gone wrong? Or something else entirely? Now let's get started with Carpenter's CSI report. From the report, 
Upon arrival, I met with Lead Harris County Constable's Office, Deputy McCants, and Lead HCSO Homicide Sergeant Doucet. Deputy McCants turned over to me a voluntary consent for search and seizure form for the residence at the address 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court, which Deputy McCants advised had been signed by complainant Sandra Melgar. Sergeant Doucet walked me through the scene, pointing out items of possible evidentiary value, including a large kitchen knife lying in the bathtub in the master bathroom. Sergeant Doucet provided a brief synopsis of events advising that on the prior evening, Saturday, the two complainants had reportedly been in the bathtub in the master bathroom when complainant Jaime Melgar left the room to put the dogs up. Complainant Sandra Melgar stated she blacked out and later found herself tied up and locked in the master bathroom closet. The following day, Sunday, relatives of the complainants arrived at the house to have dinner and upon entering the house through the open garage, found Sandra Melgar in the bathroom closet. A chair had reportedly been wedged under the doorknob, and Sandra Melgar's hands and feet were bound with a scarf and cord, which relatives cut off with a pair of scissors. Complainant Jaime Melgar was found in the master bedroom closet with multiple wounds and later pronounced deceased at the scene by responding emergency medical personnel. During the course of the investigation, the scene was photographed using a digital still camera and videotaped using an 8mm video cassette recorder. At the conclusion of the investigation, the digital still images will be uploaded to the HCSO Forensic Imaging Lab's digital image archive system. Under this case number and the video cassette will be secured in the CSU video file room. All references in this report to times of day and or measurements are approximate. Any DNA blood swabs obtained were collected using sterile cotton-tipped applicators and, if necessary, deionized ultra-filtered water and then packaged in appropriate containers. The scene was located at a residence at the address of 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court. Kelsey Meadows Court was a paved two-lane roadway extending in an east-west direction in northwest Harris County. The residence, which was located in the north side of the roadway, was a one-story, single-family home constructed of reddish-colored brick and white trim. The southwest corner of the home was an attached two-car garage with two separate overhead garage doors which faced south onto a paved driveway extending from the garage to the roadway. The east garage door was fully open. To the east of the garage was a paved walkway leading to the north to a covered porch and the front door to the residence. The front door, which faced south, was set back a short distance from the garage. The backyard was enclosed by a wooden picket fence with an access gate located on the west side of the home. The weather conditions in the area were cloudy and warm. Visibility was poor due to nighttime hours and minimal artificial lighting. There was an illuminated light at the southeast corner of the garage providing fair visibility in the immediate area. There were two vehicles parked in the driveway. One of the vehicles was a black Nissan Frontier pickup truck, which was registered to complainant Jaime Milgar. The truck was parked on the east side of the driveway and was facing north. The other vehicle was a black Toyota Prius, which was registered to Gerson Campos, who was one of the family members who arrived at the scene and found the complainants. The Toyota was parked on the west side of the driveway and was facing north. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So far, so good. Now, next, he gets into a room-by-room description of the crime scene from the report. Front entry. The front door to the residence was unlocked and open. It was a solid wooden door equipped with an entry latch and a separate single-cylinder deadbolt lock. There were no observable signs of tampering or forced entry. All of the windows throughout the house were closed and locked with no visible signs of tampering. Just inside the front door was a short entryway leading to an open foyer. To the west of the foyer was a dining room. To the north of the foyer was the living room, and to the east was a hallway. The L-shaped hallway led to the east to a study-slash-office and a guest bedroom, and to the south to a full bathroom and a bedroom that was located in the southeast corner of the house. The floors throughout the house consisted primarily of tile and hardwood flooring. The only carpeted floors were that of the master bedroom, the guest bedroom, and the southeast corner bedroom. After viewing the crime scene photos, I also don't see anything noteworthy about the front door entryway. Everything seems to be exactly as Carpenter described here. Next, we move on to what used to be Liz's room, described by Carpenter as the southeast corner bedroom. Southeast corner bedroom. This room was furnished with typical bedroom furnishings. Along the west wall of the bedroom was a chest of drawers with several of the drawers slightly open. On top of the chest was a television, jewelry boxes, and several pieces of jewelry. On the floor to the north of the chest was a guitar case and an amplifier. In the center of the room was a bed with the head of the bed against the east wall. There were no sheets on the bed, and the pillows and bedspread were pulled up against the headboard. There were nightstands against the east wall on either side of the bed. The nightstand drawers were open. At the northeast corner of the room was a walk-in closet. After reviewing the photos of this room, I have to disagree with Carpenter's description. It's not that he got anything wrong per se, other than what he described as a guitar case is actually a harp in a case. The problem lies in what he left out of the report. As he described the room in his report, I read it as though nothing was out of place other than a few open drawers. But in the photos, it's clear that the jewelry box was open, the drawer inside of it was ajar, and there were several pieces of costume jewelry scattered on top of the dresser, giving it at least the appearance that someone was at a minimum looking through the jewelry box. It's also important to note that the jewelry left behind in this room is all costume jewelry, meaning it's fake and inexpensive. Other details that I would add to this room's report are as follows. On the floor, next to the dresser with the jewelry box, lies a cheap watch and a bracelet. Also, there's a poster on the wall next to that dresser, right next to the jewelry box. The top left corner of the poster is ripped off the wall, just above the watch and bracelet that are laying mysteriously on the floor. So why do these details matter? Because it paints an entirely different picture of the scene. We need to know every single one of these details in order to perform a proper crime scene reconstruction. Based on Carpenter's report, nothing is amiss in this room. It's irrelevant. Nothing to see here. Move on. But when you add in the details that he left out, things change drastically. In my opinion, what this room is telling us 
is that someone came into this room and looked in all the drawers for anything valuable. One of the drawers contained several DVDs and an Xbox game or case. If I was writing this report, I would note that I need to ask the complainant if anything is missing from that drawer, as Xbox games have a significant resale value. Then there's the jewelry box. It's been ransacked. Someone opened it, including the internal drawer, likely looking for anything of value. It looks like they were either in a hurry or nervous because they dropped a watch and bracelet. It could be that the unsub here tried to catch the items as they were falling, catching the edge of the poster, ripping the corner off the wall. Now, are these little details important? Yes, 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 yes. Sure, this is just a small guest room in the opposite end of the house from where Jim and Sandy were found, but it paints a clearer picture of the crime scene as a whole. Someone, whether it was Sandy staging the scene or an intruder, was in that room on the night of the murder. That much seems to be clear. They looked for jewelry and maybe Xbox games, but left behind a guitar and amp and even a laptop. Another item left out of Carpenter's report. But all of this information will come into play later when we begin to develop a profile. And as you'll see as we move along here, it's pretty clear that Maurice Carpenter already had his profile implanted deep into his brain before he wrote this report. Next, Carpenter moves on to what he labels the guest bedroom. From the report. Guest bedroom. Inside the guest bedroom was a day bed against the east wall, an ironing board and storage containers against the south wall, and two armoires against the west wall. The cabinet doors of both armoires were open. Along the north wall was a closet. Inside the closet were, among other items, red-colored cords that were tied in knots. Homicide investigator Fisher requested that these cords be collected. Again, there's not a whole lot going on in this room, but we can learn from the details. Yes, the armoire doors are open, but my question for Maurice Carpenter is, what's inside them? The answer? Paperwork. Lots and lots of paperwork. Files upon files of medical billing paperwork. And that's it. Oh, and the other thing that Carpenter missed here, there was some sort of framed picture or tabletop. I'm not sure because he didn't take a photo of the underside or mention it in his report, but whatever this item is was leaning up against the armoire doors at some point and is now propped onto the ironing board, moved away to make room for the doors to open. So what did Carpenter see? A room with open armoires. Oh, and some red rope material, but we'll talk about that in another episode. I don't want to get sidetracked. But what do I see? In my opinion, someone entered this room, again, looking for something valuable. The armoire doors are usually kept closed because they are nothing more than very nice-looking file cabinets to the Melgars, evidenced by the framed whatever it was stored against the doors. The cabinets look like they could contain all sorts of treasures. It looks to me that the unsub opened the doors to see what was inside, saw only paperwork, and moved on. The closet doors open, and so was a drawer and a nightstand. This room wasn't ransacked or staged from what I can see. Someone came into this room and very quickly looked for anything valuable. They didn't find anything and they moved on. Or maybe they did find something. But the only way to figure out if anything was taken from this room would be to ask the family.
Next, Carpenter enters the study-slash-office. From the report, study-slash-office. Along the south wall of the study was an office desk. The desk doors were closed. On top of the desk was a large printer, computer monitor, and miscellaneous papers and office equipment. Along the east wall was an armoire with several boxes filled with papers. The armoire's drawers and the cabinet doors were closed. To the south of the armoire was a paper shredder. Along the north wall was a piano, and to the east of the piano was a cabinet. The filing cabinet drawers were closed. To the west of the piano was a door leading out to the north hallway. Along the west wall was a large screen television, and to the south of the television was a built-in shelving unit with a flat panel television on one of the shelves. This room actually looks completely undisturbed to me. Not a single drawer opened. The armoire wasn't opened, nothing. It appears to me that our unsub never even entered this room. There is, however, something noteworthy here. Carpenter failed to mention the dog shit on the floor. In the crime scene photos, I count no less than six different piles of dog poo on the floor of the office. Perhaps an indication that they were unattended for quite a long period of time. Next up is the living room, and Maurice Carpenter really outdid himself on this one. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From CSI Carpenter's report. Living room. The living room was centrally located on the north side of the house and was open to the kitchen and breakfast area to the west of the foyer and to the south. At the northeast corner was a short hallway leading to the master bedroom to the north and to the study office to the south. The living room was furnished with a sofa, a love seat, and a chair positioned around a glass top coffee table which was located in the center of the room. At the northwest corner of the room was a chair of the same type as the chairs at the dining room table. Along the east wall was a fireplace and in front of the fireplace was a vacuum cleaner. There were pieces of shredded paper on the floor of the living room and inside the vacuum cleaner canister. There were also pieces of shredded paper on the floors of the dining room, kitchen, master bedroom, and master bathroom. The loose shredded paper and the contents of the canister were collected. To the south of the fireplace was a flat panel television and other audio-video electronic components. Here, Carpenter makes a big deal about the shredded paper in the vacuum. Why? In my opinion, this report is intended to push the predetermined narrative that this was a staged crime scene and also that Sandy had cleaned up after the murder. But in my opinion, the paper's a red herring. The dog slept in the office where the paper shredder was kept. At the time of the crime scene investigation, the shredder was positioned in its proper place atop a trash can. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say that the dogs got into a trash bag full of shreds and proceeded to spread the wealth throughout the house. Probably the day before, because it appears that someone has already tried to vacuum quite a bit of it up, but there's still scraps throughout the house. So we see what was important to Carpenter, the details he includes, but what does he leave out? From his report, quote, To the south of the fireplace was a flat panel television and other audio-video electronic components, end quote. Sounds normal for a living room, right? 
which is exactly what you're supposed to think when you read his report. Although you might have a different opinion, if you look closely at the crime scene photos and notice the big empty space next to the 20-year-old VCR, and even more so if you notice the big old HDMI cord coming from the TV through that space and hanging down in front of the entertainment center with nothing on the end of it. I mean, come on, Maurice. It is painfully obvious that there was a newer, high-definition device in that space, and it's clearly missing. And it's not even mentioned in his report. We can learn so much from actually inspecting these crime scene photos with an open mind. Think about that living room entertainment center. What was taken? Based on the space left open and the HDMI cord, it was probably something newer. Spoiler alert, it was an Xbox. But what was left behind? A new expensive TV. Why? Why would a burglar leave a 50-inch flat-screen TV behind? My thoughts? It's too big. Which is an indicator that if this scene was not staged and a robbery did occur, the unsub or unsubs didn't have a large enough vehicle like a van or a truck. And in fact, I might go a step further and say that they were likely on foot. After the living room, Carpenter moved on to the kitchen. From the report. Kitchen. The kitchen was equipped with typical kitchen appliances and cookware, was centrally located on the west side of the house between the dining room to the south and the breakfast area to the north. The open-designed kitchen was separated from the living room and breakfast area by a bar counter that extended across the northeast corner of the kitchen space. At the center of the counter was a double sink. On the top of the bar counter were various kitchen utensils and appliances. The cabinet door to the right of the sink was open. On the west side of the bar counter was a trash can. Inside the trash can was a CVS store receipt. The receipt was dated December 22, 2012, 9.33 p.m. Along the south wall of the kitchen was the refrigerator. The west of the refrigerator was a doorway leading to the dining room. Along the west wall of the kitchen was a stove, and on each side of the stove were countertops, cabinets, and drawers. Inside the first drawer to the north of the stove were kitchen utensils, including several large knives. One of the knives in the drawers was the same style and brand, Calphalon, as the knife later recovered from the bathtub in the master bathroom. To the north of the kitchen was the breakfast area. So there's really not a whole lot going on in the kitchen, but there are some details that I would have included in my report based on the photos. There's a cutting board on the counter with a steak-type knife on top of it, and there are dirty dishes in the sink most of which appear to be Tupperware-type dishes soaking in soapy water. Now, given the number of lids visible in the only photo that Carpenter seemed to have bothered to take of the sink, I think that a reasonable conclusion to draw would be that the Melgars had recently cleaned out their fridge of old leftovers. Does that matter? Well, it just might. Remember, they were expecting their entire family to come over for a big dinner. Other details left out of Carpenter's report include a red stool in the kitchen with a DeWalt screw gun sitting on top of it. In the north entrance of the kitchen, the most direct path from the back door past the breakfast nook and into the kitchen was blocked with a tabletop, a makeshift barricade to keep the dogs confined to the breakfast nook area when they come in and out of the doggy door. Then remember he said there was two cabinet doors open, and that's true. Cabinet number one was the Melgar's liquor cabinet. And number two 
was what I would call a Tupperware cabinet. All that's left inside are several Rubbermaid-type Tupperware containers. Now, let's jump over to the master bathroom, where the Melgars were supposedly relaxing in the jacuzzi tub. When we get to the master bathroom, you'll see that there were two items taken into the bathroom from the kitchen. A bottle of liquor and a Tupperware dish filled with strawberries. Lastly, there were two drawers that were found partially opened, just left of the stove, which is directly across from the entrance into the kitchen that wasn't completely barricaded. Next, we're going to move into the breakfast slash backdoor area. Now, this area could be very important because this is where, according to Sandy, Jim was headed when he left the jacuzzi tub. From Carpenter's report, breakfast area slash backdoor. The breakfast area was located at the northwest corner of the house. There were boxes and pieces of wood positioned at the entrances to the breakfast area, apparently as barricades to contain the homeowner's pets. Within the breakfast area was an armoire against the west wall and a table and set of chairs positioned near the northwest corner. The east end of the north wall was a door leading to the backyard. The back door was constructed of a solid frame surrounding a full-length glass window. The door was equipped with a locking entry knob and a single-cylinder deadbolt lock. The door was closed and locked and there were no observable signs of tampering or forced entry. Here, Carpenter does mention the barricades that I talked about earlier. My only additions there are to point out that the one I mentioned previously would connect to the kitchen. The other barricade was blocking the entrance into the living room. The living room blockade was a hodgepodge of boxes, a footstool, and a plastic tote. It's tall enough to accomplish its purpose of keeping the chihuahuas and Pomeranian contained, but low enough that an adult could easily step right over it. But now let's talk about that back door. First things first, the deadbolt is locked. No question about that. The striker is clearly visible in the photos. Carpenter's report reads, quote, The door was closed and locked and there were no observable signs of tampering or forced entry, end quote. But here's the rub. Guess what Maurice didn't do? Open the damn door. At least he didn't report that he opened the door, and there are no photos of the door being opened. And that's not all. If someone had tried to break into the house through this door, where would they be breaking in from? That's right, the outside of the door. But guess what Carpenter didn't take any pictures of? In this file, we do not have a single photo of the outside of the door. No photo of the doors in the open position, and no photos taken of the jam of the door, which is where you would want to look for tool marks, had there been any forced entry. I also find it interesting that he sums up the door as having no observable signs of tampering or forced entry, when the pictures show about a quarter-inch gap between the jam and the door, much larger than usual. There are obvious tool marks under the deadbolt striker that very well could be from a screwdriver or pry bar from the outside. This is one way that we used to force inward swinging doors at the fire department. Rather than break through the lock, you would just separate the door from the jam, and that space is more flexible than you might think, and then just open the door. It would be pretty easy to figure out if that's indeed what was done if we only had photos of the outside of the door and the jam. Thanks a lot, Maurice. Due to a lack of information, it's impossible for us to deduce if anyone came in through this door. 
But the one thing that the locked deadbolt does tell us is that if this was a home invasion, the unsub or unsubs most certainly did not leave through the back door. Nor did they leave through the front door, as Herman Melgar told us that he also had to unlock the deadbolt in the front door. Next, Carpenter moved on to the dining room. From the report, dining room slash laundry room. Inside the dining room was a large glass hutch against the north wall and a dining table at the center of the room with four chairs positioned around the table. At the northeast corner of the table was a white bucket containing a clear liquid. There was a red-handled sponge mop inside the bucket. At the southwest corner of the dining room was a set of double doors leading to a small laundry room containing a clothes washer and dryer and other miscellaneous household cleaning items. Along the south wall of the laundry room was a door leading to the garage. The door appeared to be a solid core door and was equipped with a locking entry knob. There were no observable signs of tampering or forced entry. There was an alarm system control panel mounted on the wall to the west side of the door. This description is pretty spot on. There's just not a lot to the dining room. I would add, though, that the glass hutch was full of what appears to be very nice glassware. Also, there were two rugs on the floor of the dining room, and it doesn't appear that they came from there. They're bunched up on the floor near the doors to the laundry area. Now, for the laundry room, nothing appears to be out of place there. But the laundry area contains a door to the garage. This is the door that was unlocked when Herman and his family arrived. Herman entered through this door after passing through the garage. And the garage is where CSI Carpenter takes us next. From the report. Garage. Parked inside the garage was a silver-colored Infinity, which was registered to complainant Sandra Melgar. The vehicle was parked on the west side of the garage and was facing north. Throughout the remaining area of the garage were shelves, cabinets, and storage bins containing various tools, paint cans, lawn equipment, and other household and mechanical items. There was a Toshiba laptop computer lying inside a recycling bin which was located near the center of the garage. Both overhead garage doors were equipped with automatic garage door openers that appeared to be operational. There were no observable signs of damage, tampering, or forced entry into the garage. You're going to have to look at the photos on our website to really get a feel for the Melgar's garage. The right side was full of shelves and tools, including everything from Freon tanks to hand tools to lawnmowers and even a mountain bike. Carpenter's description is vague, but not inaccurate. However, the thoroughness of his investigation of the garage became evident a few days later. That's when Liz, Jim and Sandy's daughter, arrived back into the United States and entered the home. She noticed her old middle school backpack on the floor of the garage next to her mother's car. The bag was partially opened and a black Xbox was visible inside. She took photos and called the police. At first, she was accused of planting the bag in the Xbox. But a careful look at the crime scene photos taken by Maurice Carpenter reveals the bag sitting in the same spot where Liz found it days later. It was there the whole time. Maurice just missed it. This is as far as we're going to go with the crime scene in this episode. Up to this point, we've been through the entire house leaving only the master suite for next week. But I want to summarize what we've learned so far. Number one, 
there is clear evidence that either someone did burglarize the Melgar's home, or someone did a very thorough yet subtle job of staging the scene to make it appear as though there had been a robbery. Number two, if there was in fact a burglary, it was very likely that the unsub or unsubs were on foot, perhaps with a getaway car parked somewhere other than in the Melgar's driveway. Number three, we have no way of knowing which door a potential intruder may have entered through. The most likely point of access would be the back door. The barking dogs and the fact that Jim was going to the back door to let the dogs in lends itself to this hypothesis, but that's the best we can do at this point. And number four, if this was in fact a home invasion, the unsub or unsubs most certainly exited through the garage. Both the front and back doors were deadbolted from the inside, and the garage door was open. The door from the garage of the house was also unlocked, and further evidence comes from Sandy herself. In her police interview, she kept saying that it doesn't make sense for the right-hand door to be open. She repeatedly said that they never used that door. A listener who joined us at our Houston meetup shared a great theory about this with me. Next to the door into the house, there are two garage door opener buttons. Sandy and Jim would know which button went to which door, but an intruder would not. If they simply pushed the button closest to them, the door on the right would open, rather than the left side door that the Melgars typically used. Before we end today, I want to circle back to the beginning of this episode. Right now, we're all stuck in a place where we're wrestling with two conflicting concepts. It's very clear, I think to everyone, that despite what Maurice Carpenter's lackluster CSI report says, this scene at least looks like a burglary. Missing items, the open drawers and doors, etc. The question is this, was this a robbery? Or was it simply staged to make it look like one? I certainly have my own thoughts on this, but the truth is, at this point, I can't give you a solid answer one way or the other yet. But for now, let's jump back to Colleen Barnett's statements. This was a nice neighborhood, nothing looked inviting about the Melgar's house, and it doesn't make sense for a burglar to break into a house where people are home and awake. She also stated that there were no similar crimes in the area. I want to close today by reading you an excerpt out of a Houston Chronicle article dated March 21st, 2012, just nine months before Jim's murder. The home discussed in this article is located in a very nice neighborhood about 20 minutes away from Jim and Sandy's house. Authorities are asking the public to help identify several men who they say tied up and terrorized a family for about two hours during an armed robbery at a home in Kingwood earlier this year. Police said the men ambushed a man about 1 a.m. on February 26 and forced him inside his home in the 1700 block of Sandy Trail Court. The men tied up the man and his family, including two small grandchildren, and ransacked the house for about two hours. The thieves demanded the man give them money from his safe, but the man told them that he did not have a safe. The men left the home after stealing several items, including an iPad, an iPhone, and a gun.
our journey towards the truth continues next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.